The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder and torture, possible mentions of death, suicide, and rape, and sound effects that recall violence and gunfire. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section. Please be advised. It's been a whole season of covering the different deaths and types of people who died during martial law, but at last we've come to the big one. Welcome to Yugto, a podcast where we get mad about Filipino history. Today we get mad about a death that got so many other people mad, it eventually led to the end of Marcus's martial law. You probably already know who and what I am talking about. Let's get straight to the point. How did Ninoy Aquino's death topple the dominoes that would lead to people power and the end of the Marcos dictatorship? And what of the rumors that Marcos himself ordered the hit on Ninoy in the first place? Let's take a quick step into the past and revisit these answers. Ninoy Aquino is going back home. This is massive news. More massive than the fact that he supposedly courted Emilda back when they were much younger. More massive than his election to the Senate in 1967. More massive than when he was given the death sentence for opposing Marcos. More massive than when a heart attack in prison drove Imelda herself, supposedly again, to ask his sentence to be remanded to exile. The situation at home has worsened, and Ninoy knows that even as he is in the United States. The opposition needs his presence now, more than ever. The young, upstart politician who used to be a journalist and who was never ever afraid to call out Marcos for the atrocities that he was permitting under his regime. Ninoy felt if there's ever a time to be able to knock Marcos off his pedestal, that time could be now, if he could help as a figurehead and as a leader. As it goes colloquially, Imelda herself said out loud, if Ninoy comes home, he's a dead man. Now we aren't around to hear how she said it, but I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt and say that it wasn't a threat, necessarily. It was more of her stating a fact. As an enemy of her husband, especially one that's so openly gabbed to potential foreign allies, who uses journalist background to dig up unsavory facts for the masses, who was made a martyr via his imprisonment. He could not be allowed to live in the current circumstances. Primitivo Mejares, another journalist and enemy of Marcos, who snitched to foreign powers, whose story we covered in a previous episode, tried to come back himself after all, and he disappeared. Mejares' son was tortured to death. It wasn't far from the imagination to say that this same fate awaited Ninoy. Ferdinand Marcos, at this time, is sick and unable to work properly. But he's not sick enough that he can't consciously instruct that Ninoy must 100% be arrested but not killed. Why? The last thing he needs is to lionize Aquino, to turn him into a martyr, a Jesus Christ figure who the opposition can parade around to show the cruelty and ruthlessness and arrogance of Caesar Marcos. 
because of these circumstances, we'll never know for 100% sure who ordered what. But suffice it to say, Ninoy already knew what to expect of the power set be of the Philippines at that time. In an interview before his flight, Ninoy said, Assassination is part of public service. I can't allow myself to be petrified by the fear of assassination and spend my life in a corner. Going home isn't straightforward. Ninoy Aquino has to be issued a passport under a different name since he is barred from having a Filipino one. Marshal Bonifacio, he is cheekily called in these fake documents. The name recalls the years he spent in jail at Fort Bonifacio. Marshal Bonifacio takes several connecting flights. It's a long and winding journey, but necessary to throw people off the scent. With him are travel journalists from foreign presses ready to record the treatment he'll receive upon landing, to be able to take interviews and pictures about how he was either greeted a hero or a fugitive. Weary, anxious, but determined. At Taipei, the last step before Manila, Aquino gives an interview to his fellow journalists who have chosen to travel with him. He says, prophetically, though he doesn't know it yet, you have to be ready with your hand camera because this action can become very fast. In a matter of three or four minutes, it could all be over, and I may not be able to talk to you again about this. He tells them he will be wearing a bulletproof vest when they land. When the China Airlines flight touches the ground that day, the police are already there waiting. They're all over the airport itself, and now they're even lined up along the tarmac. Aquino sees them out of the window, and he knows what's coming next. They don't let him get off the plane. The police board and find him quite easily. His iconic glasses atop his square face are unmistakable. They are here to arrest him, and to bring him back to his old haunt, Fort Bonifacio, where he is to await judgment for defying his rule of exile. Video cameras from his journalist companions are running as Aquino is dragged up and sandwiched between five soldiers. They shuffle him out of the plane. Aquino steps out into the heat of the Filipino sun. He hasn't seen it in three years. Even with this disappointing and admittedly scary welcome, he might find a bit of joy in that. This heat means that he is home. Suddenly, in the midst of plane noises and all the murmur all around, someone was yelling, Ako na! Ako na! Ako na! People on the plane heard this, followed by shouts of Pusila! 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 Not a minute after those words are shouted, gunshots ring out, breaking through the humming and buzzing of the airport. People scream and scatter in every direction. In a matter of seconds, the cautious orders instilled by the military presence descends into chaos and scrambling. Two dead bodies hit the floor of the tarmac with a thud. Ninoy wore the bulletproof vest, but it didn't help him, as the bullet tore into his skull. The bullet enters the back of his head and exits out the front, 
taking his life with it. And he dies there, at the airport, on the soil of his beloved Philippines. Modus operandi A of the Marcos clan is to blame the communists. Marcos followers will excuse just about anything if you tell them it was to stop the communists. So conveniently enough, a communist hitman was there at the time. The other dead body, Rolando Galman, a hitman from the communist party whom Ninoy's five military escorts claimed made the fatal shot. Galman, the early investigation claims, was acting on orders of the chairman of the Philippine Communist Party. They reenacted the scene on television to show the masses the sneaky, diabolical plot. Galman hid under the staircase that Aquino and his military escorts were descending. When the time was ripe and the men had reached the bottom of the stairs, Galman popped out and shot Aquino in the back of the head. Before Aquino's body could even hit the floor, his security detail turned around and riddled Galman with bullets. It was a thrilling story. It gripped from start to finish, confirming Aquino was a victim and the communists, as the Marcos regime liked to say over and over and over, were the ruthless enemy that needed shutting down. The catch, of course, is that it wasn't true. First and foremost, how did Galman, a lone person and possibly recognizable to several of the military men due to his reputation, penetrate the airport and get to Aquino. The entire airport was teeming with military, who were there for hours and hours, waiting for Aquino's flight to touch down. Galman may be sneaky, to be sure, but it would take a godlike level of ninja abilities to somehow make it past everyone and lie in wait right at the base of the airplane. This isn't even getting into the amount of time it would have taken for him to get the shot that would end up killing Aquino. Finally, and most tragically, Galman had actually disappeared from his home in the Bulacan province far outside Manila five days before the assassination of Aquino. One can chalk that up to he was just planning ahead and had to travel, if not for the fact that his wife Lina and his mistress Anna and Anna's sister all disappeared as well within a few days after the assassination, before turning up dead in a field in November 1988. Most damningly, witnesses kept giving testimonies that opposed the escort statement. Fred Viesha, a cargo loader, said that Ninoy wasn't shot at the base of the stairs by Galman, who was lying in wait behind it. Based on what he saw, he said instead that Ninoy was shot on the stairs and his body tumbled down. Ruben Regalado, another worker, says Galman's corpse was in front of Ninoy's, as juxtaposed against the stairs, meaning he was in front of him and not behind, and could not have made the killing shot that entered the back of Ninoy's skull. Rebecca Quijano, a passenger on the same flight, had the most intriguing story. She said that she saw a military uniformed man run up behind Ninoy and place a gun squarely on the back of his head. A video from one of the journalists records the exact time between Ninoy's exit from the plane and the gunshot sound, 
showing that there was no way he could have descended all the stairs before getting shot. Several witnesses also told of the yells, Akona and Pusila. In two different dialects, the former was someone saying to leave it to them, and the second one was saying repeatedly in unmistakable instruction, shoot, shoot, shoot. Despite it all, the five escorts stuck to their story, saying they heard nothing, saw nothing, and said nothing. Marcus was sickly at the time. Again, let's make that clear. He wasn't the one that pulled the trigger, and there's certainly room to doubt that he ordered the hit himself. But Ninoy's blood was on his hands anyway. He had let the political climate reach a point where his own cronies felt it necessary to off his highest-profile opposition in the highest-profile way. And he had forced the media afterwards to try to help cover up the scandal, to no avail. Internationally, Ninoy's death propelled the atrocities of martial law, long suppressed in local TV and newspapers, to the world stage. Ninoy was a high-profile person, known especially to American media for his activism. Following his death, there was more than just coverage of the assassination. There were news articles about the number of murders and torture cases in the Philippines. There were retrospective think pieces galore on Imelda Marcos's lifestyle and spending habits, and how it juxtaposed against the plummeting Filipino economy. Academic journals and international organizations investigated the regime's supposed investments on mining and the arts that seemed to yield no fruit. There were no headlines talking about Marcos the war hero or Marcos the best president in the country's history. In all languages, in all forms, they were united in their condemnation. Locally as well, the mood was horrendous. People had a bit of fun poking at the escorts who saw nothing, heard nothing, said nothing, as the five wise monkeys. But everyone knew there were greater things at stake here. Ninoy, a beacon of hope for change, a powerful ally needed to help take down Marcos, was dead. Killed. People began to wonder what was the point of their anger, their fear, if they weren't going to do something radical to change everything. I don't worship Ninoy Aquino or his family. Certainly he had his faults, as did his wife and son, who would go on to become presidents themselves, and who would themselves allow violence under their leadership in various forms. However, I respect greatly Ninoy Aquino's sacrifice, his fervor to help the country, and the balls on him to tell Marcos exactly what he thought of him, knowing full well Marcos could have him shot at any second. The unrest eventually steamrolled into more radical local action. People began to defy their fear. More politicians and men of power, maybe realizing they could be next, began to go all in against the Marcus regime. Ninoy and the countless people who died and were mutilated before and after him in the name of martial law were the seeds. The fruit was born when at last the top brass of Marcus's military finally turned against him and were imprisoned. Cardinal Jaime Sin went on Radio Veritas asking people to go to the streets, 
sit in and pray together for the release of those military men. The response was of mythic proportions. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos poured onto the streets, covering the Edsa Square as far as the eye could see. Marcus loyalists, of course, tried to convince what was left of the military force to disperse the crowd via batons and bullets. But there were simply too many people. The threat of an all-out bloodbath versus throwing in the towel and asking the already sickly despot to finally step down? There was no question. Cory Aquino was sworn in as the first female president, where her husband would have been standing in her place had he not been assassinated, while Marcus and his family fled the country. And so, this is how the Philippines, by the end of martial law, was strongly admired by nations all over the world for being able to topple the dictator Ferdinand Marcos in an apparent peaceful revolution. However, in recent years and with the advent of digital technology, there's been a cry to stop calling the people power revolution a bloodless revolution. While people weren't riddled with bullets that day, Every day that built up to it for over two decades was awash with blood and horror. How many people disappeared in all the years of martial law? How many were taken into cells and tortured and raped? How many people were killed via gunshots, beheadings, who knows what, for people power to be possible? The answer really is far too much. According to Amnesty International, Around 100,000 people were victims of martial law. 3,000 were killed, 34,000 were tortured, and 70,000 arrested. These horrific numbers don't even count those who disappeared or whose own experiences were not recorded. Every single death and drop of blood spilled is important and irrevocably changed the lives of families, neighborhoods, sometimes even the entire nation. Liliosa Hila's death showed that no one, not even students who didn't march as activists, were safe, and that martial law was every bit as bad as people feared it was going to be. Primitivo Mejares and Boyet Mejares' disappearances and deaths were warnings of what happened when you stepped out of line. Boyet's body was the proof that to try to stand up against Marcos was to endanger not just yourself, but everyone you loved. Makliing Dulag's death showed that corporate plunder under Marcos would go so far as getting people killed. It showed that the administration didn't care for our indigenous communities, nor the poorest of the poor, nor the least of society. And the Sagod massacre drove that point further home, showing how willing the corporate ends of the Marcos regime were to go so far as to off defenseless men, women, and children all the while pandering to the sadism of Marcos-sanctioned paramilitary forces. Father Favalli's death demonstrated to other countries that Marcos had gone too far. It showed the church in the Philippines and abroad that they weren't exempt from the violence of martial law, and that any Catholicism Marcos professed was merely for appearance's sake. And Nino Aquino's death? Nino Aquino's death, to invoke a cliché, was the spark that lit the fire by proving no one, no matter how powerful or influential, was safe when the top brass was someone as merciless 
as callous, as moralless, as Marcos. The next time that you join us at Yugdo, we'll be talking about a different theme. It will no longer be about martial law. But nevertheless, we do not forget. Just because we don't talk about it every day doesn't mean that we don't still suffer from the things that we experienced then. The way that our economy has moved. The way that oligarchs have become settled. The way that people still carry the trauma from either being tortured themselves or having watched others being killed. These all still exist day to day in the Philippines. As for the Marcoses themselves, brave is one word, but maybe brazen is more appropriate. Despite martial law being living history to many of those still walking around today, they blatantly say such things like, oh, it wasn't that bad, or that their poor, dear, departed Ferdinand is being lied about in every corner of the world. Honestly, it would be laughable if it were not so disgusting. There are various factors that has led to people being more open to this historical revisionism. Legitimate hate for other presidential administrations, anti-intellectualism, class divides, Filipino values, and schools refusing to take a hard stance in teaching martial law history. And of course, good old-fashioned bribery. These are all institutional reasons, and they are all difficult to mitigate. However, there are things that we can fight. Misinformation, polarization, and corruption and plunder are the backbones of the Marcus campaign. They build upon these pillars every day still, and they settle on these building blocks because they can't wantonly have people kidnapped off the streets and tortured to death in a cell anymore. But the day will come when they'll be able to do those things again, or someone like them will, if we do not guard our histories, if we do not remember the names, if we do not remember the sacrifices, we will be doomed to make the same mistakes. Doesn't it make you angry to know how much was taken from us? Doesn't it make you angry to know that they would still take more if they could? We at Yugdo certainly won't forgive or forget. As we said in a previous episode, remembering is in itself an act of revolution. Let's keep remembering. Thank you for joining us, and see you next season. Yugto is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for the episode can be found on the website. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.ph at gmail.com. Finally, help us get these stories out there by sharing us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or any social media.